Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Welcome to episode 44 of the Lovable Podcast. Last week, we talked about how our belief that we must live an extraordinary life stops us from getting started on living our lives at all. And this week, we're going to hone in on a very specific form of this belief, the belief that what we are passionate about doing must make a difference in the world, that it must matter in some particularly measurable way. By the end of our conversation today, I think you'll be more motivated to begin practicing your passions, not because they are one way to be meaningful, but because they are the only way to be truly you. Before we get rolling, though, I want to remind you the comprehensive, lovable study experience is available now. Everything we've been working through in this podcast, all of the written content that goes along with the year of listening, loving, and living, as well as an individual and group study guide for lovable, is available for free on my website. You can go there right now to get it at drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. That's drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. While you're there, you can sign up for my mailing list at the top of the right sidebar. You'll immediately get a free ebook entitled The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down. You'll also get a free sample of Lovable. And each week, you'll get an email on Wednesday mornings with links to helpful content. Um, And of course, if you want more than just a sample of Lovable, you can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it. It's available wherever books are sold, in paperback, digital, and audio. Uh, So you can get it wherever you like to buy books and uh, always encourage you to support a local bookseller if you can. All right, let's get into this week's conversation. Instead of trying to do something that matters, try to do something that is you. Thanks for listening in. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 43 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled, Don't Do Something More Meaningful, Do Something More You. More than ever, we feel like we need to do something that matters, something that makes a measurable difference in the world, something that is meaningful, either religiously or politically or vocationally. And I'm here to tell you today that that mindset will undermine the practicing of your passions from the very start. A sense of meaning is not the reason for practicing our passions, it's the byproduct of practicing them. We don't make a difference by trying to make a difference, We make a difference by becoming different, by becoming someone free to live out our true selves by doing the things we love to do in the world. Before we get into all of that, though, let's check in about your experiences so far in these months of living. What passions are you reconnecting with? What resistance are you noticing? And what are the successes and struggles you're experiencing as you try to overcome this this resistance to practicing your passions? And of course, if you practiced last week's exercise, which focused on disrupting our compulsive urge to be extraordinary by noting the ordinary experiences, people, and passions in our life that are utterly ordinary and yet utterly beautiful. What did you notice about the ordinary beauty in your life? And as you're thinking about that, uh, I thought I'd share with you a, a very specific way that this focus from this last week's exercise had me attending to something that 
um, uh, that was encouraging to me and that f continued to further clarify and affirm my passion. Um, and so, and specifically that was, so we, we recorded last Wednesday and then we had um, a soccer game on Wednesday night. I was coaching um, 11 and under uh, soccer uh, my, for my two kids. And um, we, in our first, uh, in our first game, we looked really good. Um, and then we came out this game and it looked like no one had ever stepped foot on a soccer field. And at first that competitive part of me sort of welled up and I started to get frustrated and I started to want to do that uh, overly competitive dad coach thing. But I was able to restrain that and focus on um, cultivating improvement in the kids, encouraging them pointing out what they're doing well and using that as a way to to help them improve. And at the end of the game, as we're getting into, you know, we lost badly, as we're getting into lines to do high fives, um, one of the kids on the team uh, said, I could hear him saying to another kid, I think that's the first time I haven't felt bad about losing. <laughs> and I thought, mission accomplished. Um, there's nothing extraordinary about it. You know, an eight-year-old kid on a soccer field out in the middle of central Illinois, discovering that that losing doesn't have to mean he's a loser. Um, nothing extraordinary about that. But as I've said here, my passion, I'm in, increasingly I'm aware that my passion is speaking in the tender and encouraging voice of a father. So here there was this mo ordinary moment that affirmed um, that passion of mine, that somehow by, by doing that, um, this, this moment had a little bit of meaning. So, and we're gonna be talking more about that concept of meaning today, how it, it flows not from trying to be meaningful, but from simply being faithful to our passions and, uh, and practicing them and letting the meaning happen on its own. So um, anyhow, that was one way that just uh, tuning into the ordinary was affirming and clarifying further of my passions. And I would love to hear whether it's about last week's exercise or anything else that's going on right now for you in these months of living and, uh, and with regard to your passions. Um, yeah, what's going on? Melinda writes, that's great, Kelly. As an uber-competitive person and former soccer coach of my child and others, I can attest to what a win that is. My daughter is underperforming on the field right now, and it's driving me crazy as a spectator, mom, athlete. Oh, man. I'm having the same thing with my daughter, Melinda. She, and I don't think I'm being biased here, I think she's one of the most talented kids on the field, but she's so tentative <laughs> and so afraid of getting kicked and it's just you wanna you wanna get out there and move her around yourself but um, but yeah so to begin to to me it's about it's about in this moment rather than being angry and critical of the things you're not doing what are what are the the small signs I'm seeing of things that are delightful about you things that you are bringing to the soccer field and how can we begin to focus on those so that you begin to become aware of them as a player and start to practice them more um, and so it's just really hard though, isn't it? To restrain that, that competitive impulse that says winning is what, what matters most here. Um, thanks. I'm glad I'm not alone. <laughs> glad I'm, I know I'm not alone in it, Melinda, but I'm glad to know I'm not alone even in this group. Melinda writes, I shared this concept of finding the extraordinary in the ordinary with my yoga classes last week and spent the weekend in Northern Vermont amidst natural beauty and focused on just this. That is beautiful, Melinda. Um, the way that our compulsive desire to accomplish something or do something extraordinary can take us out of the present moment and uh, distract us from the beauty, the ordinary beauty that is right in front of us, 
Um, and to the extent that we can tune into the present as you did in Vermont this week um, and discover that, oh, the world's already beautiful. Um, the world is already extraordinary. <laughs> it doesn't need me to be extraordinary. Um, there's, a, there's a sense of freedom and peace in that. So love that you practice that in Vermont. Polly writes, I messed up a recipe and said I would never cook it again, which would undermine my ordinary passion for cooking. Oh, that's so good, Polly. Thank you for saying it. Um, when, whenever we are practicing our passions, we are going to mess up. We're going to fail. We're going to struggle. We're going to meet resistance. Um, and one of the unique things about our passions is that we, we, we enjoy them enough. We love them enough that uh, we will continue to practice them anyways, even if we've messed up, right? Even if, even if it means more failure, we'll continue to pursue that passion anyways, because the failure is worth it. The pain and the struggle is worth it. Um, just last night, I was in uh, Naperville, Illinois, near my practice at the Alive Center with uh, On Balance Parenting. Artisan Clinical Associates teamed up with them. And we talked about how the specific focus of the night is a public forum, 20 plus people there, parents and educators. And we talked about how um, the this sort of the, the self-esteem culture that says continuous success is what builds self-esteem um, has undermined the resilience of our kids. And that what really truly builds self-esteem and resilience isn't success, but learning that you can endure pain and failure, that essentially that's it. That young people who learn that they can endure pain, failure, mistakes, disappointments, mess, um, those, those kids end up with a strong sense of identity and a resilient uh, approach to the world. And so, um, so in practicing our passions and, and working our way through struggle and failure and resistance, we are actually um, developing resilience and a, a clearer sense of identity. So keep cooking. Um, it's a beautiful example, Polly. Thank you. Vicki writes, not feeling responsible for a person's responses to what I offer is important practice for me to keep putting myself out there. Boy, isn't that true, Vicki? Um, we all need to hear that and be reminded of that, that practicing our passions is not about how people will be responding to those passions. Um, as soon as we make people's responses to our passions a determinant about whether or not we practice them, we almost very invariably will not practice them because it is literally impossible to please everyone. And we will focus on the disapproving responses, right? The critical responses is just the way we work as human beings. I remember when I taught my first class at Penn State, big you know, lecture, uh, hundreds of kids. And uh, at the end of the semester, I got my reviews and basically half of them said I talked too fast and half too slow, half too quiet, you know, half uh, I was too, too silly. I mean, that reality that you can't you can't please everybody and so as soon as you start letting those those folks dis decide what you practice you're going to stop so yes thank you for that reminder that it needs to be self-determined not determined by others donna writes i'm realizing this right now as i'm on the cusp of realizing my passion what i'm seeing amazingly is that i'm being encouraged and championed by a lot of those people who i didn't see as that mm. It's been such a good reminder to remember to be an encourager to others. The byproduct of living my passion never ceases to amaze me. That is awesome, Donna. There's I mean, to immediately two really important things 
come to mind. And, and that, this doesn't surprise me about you, that the way you take that in is, ooh, I want to be that for other people. <laughs> uh, just as your reflection of your, your kind and caring heart um, that you, you take it in that way. So yes, let's, let's, let's take the encouragement we receive in the practicing of our passions and say, wow, that mattered to me. I needed that. So let me be that for other people. Um, but it also reminds me that a byproduct of practicing our passions boldly and faithfully is further clarity about who we belong to, right? Um, that the people who, who encourage us and support us and say, yeah, that's who you are. Keep doing that. Even though it may not make sense to other people, you go, oh, I didn't expect that from you, but wow, maybe, maybe I belong to you more than I, I, I realized. Um, and so this practicing of our passions continues to refine our circles of belonging and our sense of belonging, which is uh, an important principle of all this. So thanks for that, Donna, and, and sort of affirming that that's how it works through your own experience. Melinda writes, I'm really struggling with my business at present, and any practice that brings me back to the present is super helpful right now, as it keeps anxiety at bay. I'm having such a hard time staying out of worry. I have such a belief that I need to be extraordinary to live a good, meaningful life. Melinda, you're, and it's something important, you're articulating something that we all need to be reminded of, that almost all anxiety and worry and fear is a result of our mind being focused on the future um, and wanting to protect against and resist what might happen in the future. So the extent to which we can bring our mind back to the present and be present focused, um, we, we literally will, will disrupt um, that cycle of anxiety and worry. Um, but at the same time, I think if our minds are going to be tugged to the future, um, what we want to try to do is cultivate um, a surrender to what the future may or will bring, rather than resisting it. The anxiety is all about resisting it. Um, but if we can say, um, yes, this venture might not, um, it might not ever become extraordinary. Um, what will I do then? Um, will I still, will I still be, will I still be breathing? Um, will I still have this ordinary thing in my life? Will I still have these small joys in my life? Yes, yes I will. So I can surrender to that thing that I fear and know that I'll still, I'll still survive it. Um, and so beginning to relinquish our, our, our sense that it has to be extraordinary for us to, um, to, to have satisfaction in life. I think that that's, if we're gonna, if our minds are gonna be tugged to the future, that's where we wanna spend the energies as we think about the future. Stephanie writes, I'm still struggling with getting my book going because it's a topic that is scary for me, submission. I keep thinking about what people are going to think since I'm known, probably based on my own projection, as an independent, self-sufficient woman. I feel like this book has to be extraordinary. Yep, I mean, there, yeah, there it is again, too. We project ahead. How will people respond to it? Will it be extraordinary? Will be, people be surprised by hearing these thoughts, these thoughts coming from me? And what I'll tell you, um, as someone who's now done this once and I'm in the middle of doing it a second time, Stephanie, is that there's actually a place for all of those thoughts, all of those questions. It's just not in the writing process. It's in the editing process. <laughs> the, the first draft you write for you, the second draft you write for others. Um, and I hope that helps a little. Um, and that and that's sort of ties back into this whole concept of passion that we're talking about, which is you don't get started if at first you're practicing it for other people. Um, because there are too many people to please. At first, we're doing it simply to be who we are. Um, and then as we, as we refine it and clarify it, then we can sort of start to let um, the feedback of others shape how we do it. And Stephanie adds, but I now see that my messy ordinary is the way to write it. Thanks. Um, yeah, I don't know if I mentioned this this 
past episode, but I was just recently reading Do the Work by Stephen Pressfield, and he noted that everything begins in chaos. Childbirth, the universe, <laughs> any creative process, it all begins in mess and chaos. And then it slowly comes to order over time, right? And the beginning of any project, whether it's a book or a business or whatever, it, it has to start in chaos. And if we, if we want it to not feel chaotic at the beginning, um, then we won't get started. Um, we'll sort of, sort of label that as bad or wrong or, um, and we'll just, we'll just resist, we'll resist the, the beginning of it. So yes, let it start in mess. Let it start in chaos. Let what is inside of you come out and then go back and, and bring it to order. Brenda writes, sort of articulating just a, an ordinary, an ordinary way of being an ordinary passion that is beautiful in and of itself it is being a prayer partner and or encouraging a little stress relieving fun for others. Um, a grandmother, an empty nester friend, a new mom, a college student, a teenager, several sick or grieving people, victims, and so on. I can't think of a better ordinary passion um, that is absolutely worth practicing. Marie writes, I find that I can embrace the ordinary. I kind of like ordinary. I think it's because I can perfect the ordinary, but I'm trying to really embrace real ordinary, the imperfect kind. Naturally, I get lots of opportunities to practice this with my kids, laugh out loud. Well, and Marie, you're articulating something so important, which is that, you know, even as we try to grow and embrace new experiences, our old ways of being want to kind of come in and hijack that, right? So um, I used to try to be perfect in order to be extraordinary. Now I'm trying to perfect being ordinary. <laughs> and the, 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 the actual commonality is this drive for perfection, which you are, you are confronting and getting at, that it's okay to not be perfect. It's okay for things to be messy. Just last night we were talking about, again, this idea that it's important for our kids to experience failures. Um, and we talked about how even the impulse to be successful can infiltrate that. So, okay, I want to I be the best at helping my kids experience failure. Right? I want to be a success at my kids not being a success. And so we have to be careful of, of that, those tendencies infiltrating even our, our most sincere desires to grow and really let things be different really let them be different, not just a, a different version of the sort of perfectionism and, and ambition that we had before. Brenda writes, can I just celebrate getting coffee stains out of my college daughter's jeans when neither of us drink coffee? <laughs> her classmate was having a bad day. He was very late to their 8 a.m. class and then dropped his hot coffee all over her light-colored jeans. She was gracious and understanding, and I was happy to help in an ordinary way as her laundry assistant. Ordinary. Beautiful example, Brenda. I love it. Hadley writes, I would say practicing my passion feels indulgent when I'm working with a felt sense of being defective and previously perceived failures. Yep. Um, <laughs> the voice of shame sort of comes into the practicing of your passions once again and says, uh, what right do you have? What right do you have to enjoy doing something like this? What right do you... I remember... Uh, going to my very first therapy session a number of years ago and the voice of shame chimed up the next morning and said What right do you have to spend this much time taking care of yourself? Uh, what what right do you have to spend this much time healing, you know? Um, the shame will come in and say that this practicing of our passions feels good And so you don't deserve it and Hadley I think that's a great segue into this week's topic. So I'm gonna um, I'm gonna segue us from there uh, because um, because the voice of shame will also say to us, what right do you have to practice your passion if it's not making a, a predictable, guaranteed, measurable difference in the world? If it's not producing this sort of, um, 
of meaning in the world for other people? What right do you, isn't it selfish of you to think that you should practice it? And we want to actually challenge that voice and that belief as well. Now on the surface of it, wanting to have a positive impact on the world, you know, it's a good desire. It's a reasonable desire, but we're just going to get into more of the ways that that desire keeps us from really even getting started. Um, And to give this week's reading a little more context, I'm going to read first a significant portion of chapter 24 from Lovable, which is entitled, The Question That Can Silence Any Story. It begins with a quote from Howard Thurman. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. I know a woman who has a story to tell. She wants to write a novel about the day her life changed, the day she felt the lump, the day the illusion of control was ripped from her, the day she was pulled off the path she'd been walking and dropped onto a path called chemotherapy and uncertainty and fear. She looks around at a culture obsessed with violent metaphors, a culture that talks about breast cancer as if it's a war, battling it, fighting for your life, and she wants to tell the other side of the story. She wants to write about what it's like to sit in a chair for hours upon hours, having poison pumped into her veins while it slowly dawns on her. There's nothing to fight. No control to be wrested from the fates. She wants to tell the story of jumping into that dark abyss and finding the light at the bottom of it. Right now, that is her passion. But so far, she hasn't. Why? Because she's asking the question that can silence any story. Does it matter? She doesn't know if people will be interested in her story. She doesn't know if it will move anybody or make a difference to anyone. And that is terrifying to her. Almost as terrifying as the cancer. Because this is her story, her identity. At some level, she is, like all of us, harboring this fear. If what I'm passionate about doing doesn't matter to anyone else, then maybe I don't matter. So her story stays trapped inside of her. I know how she feels. And then I go on in this chapter to talk about a number of the ways that I, I felt like my work as a therapist didn't matter because it, it was so minuscule in the scope of the, the, the big pain that we, obviously, um, the collective pain of this world. Um, same thing about <laughs> blogging. Did it really matter in, in the face of all the content in a person's newsfeed? Writing this book, did it really matter um, given all the books that are on the bookshelves these days? Um, But then I listed several examples of um, places where my reaction to small, ordinary acts of of courage and kindness and generosity suggested that they do matter um, in a different way than we typically think of it. Um, My son asking me for money to give to a homeless man. Um, My my other son telling us we can't drive out of the driveway till he moves the worms out of the driveway, right? So so that they won't get crushed. you know, the, the, the gentleman uh, in my hometown who is keeping a, a small independent bookstore alive for a small town, right? Nothing extraordinary in it. Does it matter in the grand scheme of the world? It's hard to quantify that. But, but the, the affection that I feel for him and his passion, to me, it tells me that it does matter in a different way. Um, so I go through all of those examples, um, and then I conclude with this. Around the time I was stifling my urge to write a book, I went to a conference for creatives. I was beginning to identify as an artist and was looking forward to learning from some kindred spirits. I needed to be inspired and had high expectations. What I ended up inspired by, though, was their lack of expectations. It turns out most artists don't do their work to achieve any particular outcome or victory, except to conquer the impulse to bury their passions deep within them. Their only goal is to turn themselves inside out putting their passion into the world until something beautiful happens. It's as if artists have given a megaphone to the voice of grace so they can hear it always saying, you're not here to be great, 
You're here to create. You're not here to make a difference. You're here to make beauty, to make a little order out of the big chaos, to add a little abundance in a world of scarcity. You're not here to make a name for yourself. You're here to make you more you by doing what you want to do. Being an artist is simply having the audacity to add your little bit of beauty to the world. And every single one of us can become an artist. If your passion is gardening, for instance, if you come alive when your hands are in the dirt and the scent of watered tomato vines makes you feel like the universe has opened to you and you've been welcomed home, and if you have a 10 by 10 foot plot of land in your backyard, and if you spend your days tending to that land, cultivating it, enriching it, working it until it bears fruit or vegetables, then in 100 square feet of the world, your passion has a purpose that matters. You see, the real question isn't, does unleashing my passion on my 100 square feet matter? The real question is, if everybody on this big broken rock tended to their 100 square feet with their passion, would it matter? Would the world become a more beautiful and abundant place? And if the answer to that question is yes, then garden the hell out of your 100 square feet, literally. Turn it into heaven. Quote, let the beauty of what you love be what you do, writes the poet Rumi. Play your one note, beg for the dollar for the begging man, move your worm, find your counter to stand behind, lift up your kids just a little higher than yourself, write your book. Your story will probably not end up on the bestseller list. That's okay. You're not here to sell it. You're just here to tell it. What is your 100 square feet? So I, I felt like that context, um, this is a big topic. It's a complicated topic, this topic of doing things that matter and have meaning. And so I thought that context was important today. So I, a little bit lengthier intro than usual to this week's reading. But here we go. The reading for this week, week 43 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled, Don't Do Something More Meaningful, Do Something More You. I wrote a book called Lovable. At first, every time I sat down to work on it, I was hit with the same sinking feeling. Every time. And every time it came in the form of a question. What if these words don't matter? It's a crippling thought, a dreadful feeling that keeps you looking back at every sentence you've written, questioning, doubting, sinking deeper and deeper into the rhetorical quicksand. What if my words don't matter? It's a question that disguises another question. What if I don't matter? It's the question on the tongue of every human heart. For millennia, we have tried to prove we matter with success and status and stuff. But what if we finally decided there was nothing left to prove? What if we decided our worth was no longer in doubt? What if we decided mattering didn't matter anymore? Maybe we'd be free to quit the game of proof and get into the game of life. One day in the midst of writing Lovable, I sat down to write and something different happened. As I began to sink into the quagmire, I heard the still, small whisper of grace. And it said this, Kelly, you don't write a book because you think it will matter. You write a book in spite of the fact it probably won't matter. You do what you love because the desire has been written on your heart and planted in your soul and engraved into your DNA. You do it because you aren't you unless you do it. Author Madeline LaEngle recalls being rejected by yet another publisher on her 40th birthday. Quote, I covered the typewriter in a great gesture of renunciation. Then I walked around and around the room, bawling my head off. I was totally, unutterably miserable. Suddenly I stopped because I realized what my subconscious mind was doing while I was sobbing. My subconscious mind was busy working out a novel about failure. I uncovered the typewriter. In my journal, I recorded this moment of decision, for that's what it was. I had to write. I had no choice in the matter. It was not up to me to say I would stop because I could not. It didn't matter how small or ina inadequate my talent. If I had never had another book published, 
and it was very clear to me that this was a real possibility, I still had to go on writing. Success is pleasant, of course. Of course you want it. But it isn't what makes you write. Our secret insecurity is always focused on outcome, while our hearts, while our heart of hearts is always focused on coming out, stepping out, trying out, striking out, and trying again. Because there is joy in showing up, because there is joy in becoming more who we already are. No goals, no expectations, just freedom, revelry, play, hearts finally moving to the music they've been hearing all along. Souls transform from wallflowers into dancers, falling into the arms of grace and being reminded there's nothing to prove. Our worth is not up for grabs. All that's left to do is to enjoy who we are and to live it out in the world. On that particular morning, as I heard the voice of grace, a different kind of sinking feeling happened. The thought sank from my head to my heart, and my fingers came alive on the keyboard. Meanwhile, outside my window, the wind blew fallen leaves like autumn tumbleweed, and I watched as a gray-bearded retired man from down the block pushed a massive lawnmower up the middle of the street toward the home of an old ailing woman whose yard was buried in unraked leaves. I watched as he ran his mower over the lawn and solved her leaf problem in a matter of minutes. She wasn't home. She'd never know who did it. Did it matter to her? Maybe. Did that matter to him? Nope. I watched as he pushed his mower home. He wasn't caring for his neighbor because it mattered. He was caring for his neighbor in spite of the fact it probably won't matter, because it's who he is, because he wouldn't be himself if he didn't do it, because growing up doesn't mean becoming more mature, it means becoming more you. If you were given permission to simply be more you, what would you do? Start speaking up, standing up, standing out, walking out, reaching out, pouring out, sitting in, giving in, giving up, opening up, to what? Dance lessons, photography school, medical school, dropping out of school, starting a band, starting a business, starting a movement, dominoes? Why wait? After all, you weren't created to be successful. You were created to be you. So that is the, uh, the, that's the reading for this week. Um, and uh, I'm curious, as you're, as you're taking it in, what are your reactions to the reading? Um, and specifically, maybe, you know, what is one way that maybe you have felt compelled to make a difference? And, and what would you do if the only difference you had to make in the world was to become a different kind of person? The kind who practices your passions regardless of the outcome, regardless of any predictable impact it makes on the world. Um, what would it look like if that was the only difference you needed to make, was to be different? Stephanie uh, circles back to the, that, that sense that practicing our passions is, is selfish and, and writes, I feel that too, that honoring my passions or things I value doesn't bring benefit for others. I sense the shame and the, quote, who do you think you are? You don't deserve that. You haven't worked hard enough for it. Um, yeah, Stephanie, I think I appreciate you seconding that um, experience because my guess is um, that most of us at some level experience exactly that, um, but we haven't confronted it. We haven't challenged it. It's just part of our normal thought process. And we actually see it as sort of, we see it as a good part of us. Um, we see it as an altruistic part of us, as an unselfish part of us, when in fact it's, it's the shame part of us saying, once again, why do you deserve good things? Why do you get to, to, get to do what you want to do? Um, who are you helping with that? You should stop. Until you can guarantee me that you're going to help so-and-so with that, you should, you should just stop doing what you love. Um, and so the world stops changing one person at a time. So thank you for seconding that. We, we all need to be encouraged to be listening up for that voice discouraging us. Shelley writes, through my failures, I have learned to become more humble and grateful for the things that do go well, but I never take anything for granted. I had a health scare over the summer. That made me take a sit, made me take a sit and discover what is really important. 
I strive to be kind, love on others, offer grace, doing what I can, where I can, with no expectations. I am finding contentment at last. I want to read that last sentence. I am finding contentment at last. Shelley, that is beautiful. Um, and, and let's think about this. Um, if we had to be able to say, um, by for Shelley, by practicing your passion for these things, how help, guarantee me that you'll make a difference in the world. Guarantee, show me the ways that you'll you'll have an impact. It'd be almost impossible to do. I strive to be kind, to love on others, offer grace, doing what I can, where I can, no expectations. You wouldn't do any of that if you started out from the premise of I have to demonstrate the impact I'm having on the world. Stephanie writes, I remember really wrestling with this in my recovery from my husband's confession of infidelity. If I can't use this for good, if it doesn't change me, if there's no reason for it, then what? It can't be all for nothing. It can't be just a painful experience that doesn't get used for something better. Until I let go of the grip that it has to make sense, I allowed all the pain, mm, sorrow, anger, disgust, all those ugly emotions wash over me. I found my place in it. That yes, my shame story was being redeemed by grace, and even it wasn't used for some. Even if it wasn't used for something extraordinary, the simple act of surrendering my need for control was enough. Stephanie, that articulates the process so beautifully. That by saying I will enter fully into this experience, if I know how it's going to change me, change people, change the world, be redeemed, um, then I'll enter into it which prevents you from ever entering into it. Instead, you submitted to it, you surrendered to the experience, you allowed yourself to enter the pain. And then sure enough, the byproduct of that surrender was things starting to get redeemed, <laughs> um, was beauty, healing, resurrection beginning to emerge from it. Um, but it can't be the reason for entering into the experience. Uh, it can, can only be the byproduct of it. Um, Shelley writes, your words will find their way to those that need to see them at just the right moment, just as those we need the most cross our path at just the right time. That is so true, Shelley, and it reminds me of one of my favorite definitions of art. Um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but Seth Godin essentially says, um, creating and art aren't the same thing. Art is creations that you show to people. You have to share. You have to share it for it to become art. That's that's inherent in in the process, and I think what you're getting at is um, our passions. We don't need to keep them hidden. We can make them available and seen by people, and uh, and not be in control of the process of making a difference in people's lives. But just by showing up, practicing our passions, letting them be seen, sharing them, um, then trusting, trusting that that meaning will emerge, that people will hear, receive what they need to when they need to. Um, it's this sort of, it's this sort of beautiful mystery you enter into and a way better experience than trying to control all of it. Deb F writes, what is your 100 square feet? Powerful. I'm constantly writing in my head, whether I choose it or not. <laughs> right, Deb? I think it's Jeff Goins who's, who's, his sort of brand, his, his platform is you are a writer. And, and what you're, what you're discovering there is you are, you're a writer. You're always writing in your head. It doesn't matter if you put anything on paper, you might as well put it on paper. <laughs> you might as well share it and turn it into art. Right. Um, and then whatever value those words have for the, whatever people that those words reach, um, let that take care of itself. Shelley writes, I believe I am only here to be God's hands and feet, learning to shine his light in his time, not mine. Wow, that last part's so important, Shelley. Learning to shine his light, his light 
in his time, not mine. It reminds me of the story I tell in, in Lovable, where uh, Caitlin had started taking piano lessons that we'd sort of held off on for a long time, and she finally started taking them. And after one practice session, um, she came up to, to me and said, you know, Dad, it's, it's really hard to uh, play the piano when you're thinking about how much your mom and dad love that you play the piano. <laughs> and what she's getting at there, right, is that the motivation to practice my passion in order to achieve something, whether it's the pleasure of mom and dad or the reaction of mom and dad or to, um, to do something on God's behalf, um, it actually makes it harder to practice our passion. Our calling is to simply identify it, practice it, uh, and let the impact take care of itself and, and trust that that will happen. That's really well articulated, Shelley. Jane writes, I've been stalking you for a long while, and this is my first time being able to join you live. I'm starting to glimpse how, if I can change how I think and interact with others, I will help the world, at least in the way that I'm not sending out ripples of hurt. If I can share a listening ear, that's a huge help in this world. Well, first of all, thanks for joining it. Thanks for stalking. Thanks for joining in. Thanks for, um, for, for showing up and, and sharing that comment. Um, one of the things that you might have missed in these conversations is my, my clarity that my sense of passion has continued to evolve and uh, to the point now where that sense of passion um, is best articulated in me as speaking in the tender and encouraging voice of a father. Um, and in the same way that you're saying, maybe part of my passion is simply being a listening ear. Um, that, uh, that when we get that sort of clarity about our passions, we discover that we don't have to radically change what we're doing with our lives. We begin to radically change how we do what we do with our lives. Um, and so we get to practice our passion in almost everything that we're doing. Um, and so, so glad to hear that that clarity is, is sort of emerging from this conversation for you. Melinda writes, my purpose in life is to help people transform their lives by learning to love, believe in themselves. What I find about this work is it's naturally tied to my own journey. This is where I can get caught up in needing to be extraordinary. How can I lead others to their best self if I'm not doing just that? Right now, I have very little motivation to do this work, but the income is critical for our family. Wow, there's so much there. There's so much there, Melinda. You know, you have clarity about your passion. You want to do it as well as possible. That's good too. Um, I, I recognize that one of my passions is excellence. Um, there's nothing wrong with, you know, wanting to do everything as well as possible. Um, but then the shame comes in and wants to turn that desire for excellence into... Um, an experience of being extraordinary and um, on top and victory. And so we have to be careful of that. Um, but you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Do what you do what you love. Do it well. Do it as well as you possibly can. Um, and then you get at the complexity of monetary issues, right? To, to what extent can I, can I practice this passion given the monetary realities of our family? Um, what do I need to begin to do to create more financial margins so that I, I maybe don't have to make this this passion of mine as as monetarily beneficial as I as it as I feel the pressure to make it so all sorts of complicated issues in there that I appreciate you articulating um, and we are actually as again as we shift into these next is this home stretch of these months of living we're going to be getting at more of those practical issues um, what do you have to do to take some of the pressure off of practicing your passion so that you can practice it as purely as possible without some of those other sort of more um, more toxic motivations creeping in. So we're gonna be talking a lot about that in these remaining weeks. Um, I'm gonna look forward to hearing what you what your reflections on those are. 
All right, so let's continue our conversation right now by getting into this week's exercise. It's the week 43 practice, and here it is. All of us along the way absorbed messages about what matters in life and what doesn't. Often we are told either implicitly or explicitly that success has to do with recognition, popularity, monetary gain, material wealth. In churches, we often receive the message that the only actions that matter are those which directly save souls for eternity. Other times, we are taught both explicitly and implicitly that the only lives that matter are the lives that make a difference, which usually means affecting the world in some well-recognized way. And the list of our false criteria for what matters goes on and on. This week, we're going to challenge the voices from our past with regard to the meaningfulness of particular vocations or callings or passions. So the first thing I want you to do is take a sheet of paper and I want you to draw a line right down the middle, dividing it into two columns. At the top of the left half, write meaningful. At the top of the right half, write meaningless. Now list every job, career, passion, vocation, or calling you can think of. This might take a while. Placing them into one of the two categories, based upon the messages of your youth. Now you're probably, you're, you're this far into the months of li- uh, listening, loving, and living, so you're... Your ideas about what is meaningful and meaningless are starting to change, but I want you to try to put yourself into the messages of your youth. For instance, based upon the voices from my past, missionary or pastor would definitely go in the meaningful column, while attorney and environmental protection would go in the meaningless column. Now take a second sheet of paper, replicate the columns from the first sheet, and based upon the voices from your past, place all of the passions you have identified so far in these months of living in one column or another. Again, based upon the voices of your past. Next to any passion in the meaningless column, elaborate by writing down the messages from your past about that passion. For example, environmental protection is a waste of time because there's nothing wrong with the environment, and even if there is, what could one person do to make a difference? Or, you can't make a living as an artist, study something that can earn you a paycheck. Pay special attention to these passions placed in the meaningless column. Based upon the messages from your past, you might be particularly likely to overlook, neglect, or reject these passions. Based upon the messages from your past, you might actually be here on this planet to do something that you've always considered meaningless. Conclude this week by talking back to the voices from your past. Tell them you're not here to make lots of money or make a big difference. You are here simply to be you. So let's continue our conversation. Um, I want to scroll back and pick up some comments and and sort of also put out there the question, are there any specific passions that immediately come to mind for you? Uh, Passions which, when you think about them, you think, oh, that's selfish, as we've already started to talk about, or oh, one person doing that wouldn't matter at all, or oh, I can't guarantee the impact that will have on people or the world, so I shouldn't waste my time trying it. What are the the passions that start to to, uh, already populate your sort of meaningless column? are there any of those that you recognize? Vicki writes, So I took training in spiritual direction thinking I could give back some of the profound healing I had received through it, but I wasn't passionate about it. I tried leading women's spirituality groups, but it completely drained me. I have done some blogging because people have encouraged my writing as something that touched them. But what I discovered really brings me alive, fills me with joy and passion. I'm obsessed by it is paddling my canoe in northern wilderness waters. I begin dreaming the next trip when I am leaving the current one. What difference does that make in the world? I really don't know. It can feel frivolous. I have begun taking loved ones, friends, even a few strangers out there. Somehow that validates the passion, but is that trying to justify? Um, 
Well, again, Vicki, first of all, thank you. Beautiful example. Um, and it's, it's complicated, isn't it? Um, I don't think taking people to enjoy that passion of yours, which on the surface of it to you, you might go, oh, that's sort of meaningless. It's not making a difference. I don't think taking people along with you um, means that you're somehow um, corrupting the passion. Um, I think I think it's important to sort of be aware of is it the true self or the false self that is doing that inviting? Am I am I inviting? And it might be different week to week, right? Or, or trip to trip. You might check in with your true self and on a particular trip go, I need this one just for me. I'm going to go on my own. Uh, next time you go, you might check in and be like, I want to bring so-and-so. Um, I don't know why I want to bring so-and-so, but something in my gut tells me that I want to bring them this time. Um, and uh, versus where your false self might each time say, this is selfish. Um, you, people will judge you if they know that you're doing this. So you need to bring somebody or a big group of people every time and try to make sure that it's healing for them too. You know, that's, you just need to be attentive to those differing motivations and the places in you out of which they arise. But this is just such a beautiful example, Vicki. Um, the world is becoming a better place because you are becoming more you in that practice. I can guarantee you that. Lena writes, you're not here to be great. You're here to create. This was my wow or eureka moment. Thank you so much for all that you share. It's so, so needed. You are welcome, Lena. Um, I feel like you're validating that early, earlier conversation we were having about put your words down on paper, share them, and the person who will hear it will hear it at the time they need to hear it. So um, sort of a validation of what we've already said today. So thank you for, for adding that. Um, grateful for it. Brenda writes, a private or unshared at this time passion can still have a reflected effect. If I create that which makes me different now, that's okay, and maybe it will be of interest to others later. That's it. And that's the, that's the um, increasingly, I think that's the theme that's emerging from, from today, is that our passions make, when we practice them, they make us different. Um, and that different person then goes out into the world. And there are ripple effects from that. We can't do it because of the ripple effects. Usually we don't know what the ripple effects are. Um, but by becoming people practicing our passions, we are becoming different people, and that begins to change the world. Shelley writes, my dad told me when I wanted to attend the Savannah College of Art and Design, fantastic college, by the way, that I would never make any money as a graphic designer. Yeah, I have found I love making my own memes on Canva, canvas for my women's group and the autistic group I have here locally. Listening to music through my headphones and creating on can Canva is so relaxing for me. Um, I love that. I suspect it's because you're sort of right in the heart of your passion. And Shelley, to think about the ways that you're bringing your various passions together in that moment um, is really, really cool. Um, so um, don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. Um, and, and perhaps even be looking for ways to make that graphic design more and more part of what you do. Um, it's, uh, you're, you're, you're worthy of enjoying something that much. Stephanie writes, in my house growing up, success was noted when, quote, someone has done very well for themselves, unquote, which meant high position, lots of money, status, stuff, etc. One day, not too long ago, I asked myself what I would, what would make me proud of my kids. I heard the voices of my past saying, if they do well in life, I had to really challenge that. And I came to the conclusion that it is their character that truly matters, how well they love, give, and show up in their own passions, regardless of society's measuring stick of what success looks like. Um, I really am super, well, I'm grateful for, number one, who you are, Stephanie, your willingness to enter into that self-reflection, and then your willingness to express it here, um, because it's a great example of, of this week's practice, um, you know, that 
to become aware of the messages from our past that sort of um, keep our passions in a cage, right? Uh, will practicing this passion mean I did well for myself in life? Um, if, if not, should I quit practicing it? Um, we want to confront those voices from our past that, that give us a definition of what meaningful is that we need to question. Alex writes, for this week's exercise at 45, I find it very difficult to connect to the beliefs of my youth. I don't even know that person anymore. Um, I appreciate that you said that, Alex, because as I was reading it this week, um, that, that exercise, that for the first time ever, I had the thought that um, if, if we're unable to recollect or connect with the messages from our youth or from our past, probably all we need to do is listen for the voice of shame because it's in the voice of shame that those messages get internalized. So we sort of still carry around the messages and, and voices from our past in the form of the shame that we that, that is constantly discouraging us from practicing our passions for various reasons. So if you instead you said, listen for the voice of shame that says, you can't do that because it's not meaningful enough, and it's not meaningful enough because, then you'll sort of be traveling through time and reconnecting with some of those messages you received when you were young. All right, everybody, thanks again for another uh, wonderful, wonderful discussion. Next week really is going to, as I've said, represent a shift into the home stretch of this year of listening, loving, and living. Specifically, we'll be moving uh, from confronting our false beliefs about and our resistance to practicing our passions, and instead we're going to start talking about concrete steps we can take toward practicing our passions in an intentional way. It's going to be week 44 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled The Beauty of Being a Quitter. Until then, remember, you are lovable and you matter even when no one notices. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. Yeah.